0: This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. And in this episode, Eurasia's Bremer picks 2019's biggest risks. Eurasia Group's founder and chief executive, Ian Bremer, tends to leave an impression. And owning his own powerful business that he started gives him the rare luxury of being paid to tell the uber truths, those things that most other pundits steer away from. I met him at an RMB conference in Cape Town two years ago where he explained how his interactions with confidants of the then newly elected U.S. President Donald Trump left him in no doubt that a trade war was coming. It was only a matter of when, he told us. In Trump's mind, Bremer said, China had to be stopped before it took America's crown, and best to do it sooner rather than later. And was an extreme view back then, Trump, having been seen by most people as all bluster and no follow-through. But, as we now know, Bremer was right on the money. Such is his reputation that Bloomberg's senior commentator, Tom Keene, has made it something of a tradition to kick off his own new year by interviewing Bremer on what he sees for the year ahead. Tom did it again this week, going along to the Fifth Avenue offices of Eurasia in New York. Let's eavesdrop as Bremer starts with an overview.
1: If you look at uh, the major things that are happening in the world today, the geopolitical trends, both domestically within countries and internationally, All of them are trending in a negative direction. It's the first time since we started the company 21 years ago when we could say that. None of them are urgent. Whether we look at the erosion of U.S. political institutions, whether we look at challenges inside Europe as a whole and inside those individual countries, whether we look at the system of global alliances, U.S.-Russia, U.S.-China, uh, transatlantic and within the Middle East, or the rise of populism and nationalism. None of these things are urgent. Right. All of them trend in the negative direction. All of them mean that we won't respond effectively to the next crisis when it comes.
2: I love your word. i got to pronounce it right here. Escalatory. What is our movement towards escalatory crisis?
1: Well, I guess I would say with the global economy doing well, it doesn't feel like 2019 is your challenge. But if you think about when the big recession hit in 2008, Everyone responded constructively so that we avoided depression. The United States, the Europeans, the Chinese. There was strength. There was a lot of strength. 9-11, the response came from the United States. Right. The whole country came together behind Bush. Can we do that now? The coalition of the Can willing, the Russians. No. No, whatever the next shock is, whether it's cyber or terror or more likely the next economic downturn, right. the reaction inside our country and internationally is going to be toxic. And I think that that's what's underappreciated this What is
2: our IR confidence right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, the confidence in the economy is, I would say, reasonably strong. Mm-hmm. The IR, the international relations confidence is low and trending worse on a daily basis. Yeah. Now, a lot of that, a lot of the reason that IR confidence isn't high in the markets is because of Trump. But it shouldn't be that. It should be much more structural. It should be that the forces that got Trump elected in the United States, it should be the forces that led to Brexit in the UK, it should be the forces right. that have led to the Italian government as well as yeah. the rise of China.
2: Is he a one-off? I mean, that's the, the question. I see you out doing all the media for Eurasia Group and all that, and they never ask you the, just the pregnant question. Is President Trump a one-off phenomenon. I bit, think of William you know, Jennings Bryant.
1: When I see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on 60 Minutes yesterday saying, uh, I may get the facts wrong, but you need to focus on the underlying morality of what of I'm saying, right? That's exactly what Trump was saying. Take him seriously, but not literally. That's exactly why the Brexit forces won. Okay, well, let me won. flip it. Is
2: the is the liberal progressive new confidence that we see in the house. Will that be a one-off or is there a real sustained move back to a more liberal
1: theology in America. What I'm saying is I think the center not holding is not a one-off. And while Trump himself, in terms of his volatility, his character or lack thereof, that that is indeed an extreme outcome in the U.S., the likelihood that the next president or series of leaders would come from the farther right and farther left, I think is growing. Do you have an
2: optimism that we can do and practice democracy given this polarity? That middle ground seems to be gone.
1: I have an optimism that American political institutions are surprisingly strong and resilient and they can withstand whatever Trump and his administration has to offer against it. But that's different from saying that democracy fundamentally is working for a majority of Americans. I think that when Trump says the system is rigged against you and people respond to that, it's because... He's right. Now, Trump hasn't made the system less rigged against them, but he did identify the problem. And a lot of people out there are telling their constituents liberal democracy has been gamed to create much greater inequality and to give access to power and speak power to truth. And that's not a useful thing for most voters.
2: then I look at bad seeds, U.S., China, cyber gloves off, Euro populism, Mexico, Ukraine, and the rest, I want to go back to the arching theme of surveillance for last year which is technology. And you're calling for an innovation winter. What is that?
1: Innovation winter means that a combination of a fragmentation of the most important technology trends, so 5G, which is going to be the backbone, not just of smartphones, but the Internet of Things, smart cities, is not going to be one system like 4G was. It's going to be a China-led system and a Western-led system, and they won't interact. That's one part. And the second part is the growing tech lash, the political trends against the big tech firms in the Does West. Techn- I've been dying to
2: ask you this question, Ian. Does technology enhance or accentuate the Gilded Age so many of our listeners feel we're, we're living in?
1: It makes uh, those <clears throat> that don't participate in the Gilded Age more aware of the fact that they're left behind. It makes it easier for them to connect with others that feel the same way. Um, it also speeds up yeah. Um, the ability of those in the Gilded Age um, to build walls that effectively differentiate these
2: people. You're a great student of domestic politics. What will the new Democratic Party look like?
1: Um, because there are- all um, focused on 2020 after these midterm elections. you sure they're not focused on April of this year? And Trump. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're they're, they're going to be focused on impeachment proceedings as well, and I have a hard time seeing uh, Pelosi uh, keeping that off of the agenda. But I do think that it helps to coalesce the Democrats when they are all kind of on message against the American president. But let's be clear, 17 Republican candidates, most of them were pretty establishment and in the middle. You're going to have 20 to 30, 20 to 30 Democratic candidates, (coughs) and they're going to be some in the middle, some on the left and some complete outsiders. And that does make the 2020 race from the Democratic perspective much more of a crapshoot to what you get.
0: A crapshoot. Not swearing, but an American's way of saying it's like the roll of a dice or an outright gamble. The irrepressible Tom Keene is a regular visitor to the World Economic Forum in Davos. I'll doubtless see his towering frame once again in two weeks' time. Having attended the events enough times to know where the big news lurks, Keene also used his visit to Eurasia's New York offices to swap notes – with the firm's head of research and strategy, Meredith Sumter.
2: I was a bit surprised for It's the first time I've brought it up. President Trump, the huge distraction at Davos last year, and he goes for a redux this year, if he can get through to TSA at the airport to fly there. I mean, President Trump again speaking to the international community.
3: Yes, well, Davos is certainly a critical stage for him and for his brand globally. I like that, his brand. His brand, for sure. And I think he also, his speech at last year's Davos played fairly well, uh, according to to the White House. Uh, So look for a repeat performance there, but also watch for President Trump. Uh, to have a sideline meeting with Chinese uh, Vice President Wang Qishan at Davos. Uh, That is something that all of us will be watching for signs as to how the ongoing round of negotiations between the U.S. and China are faring. We
2: spent a lot of uh, time through the morning with really up top your Chinese risks as well. I want to address right now your lengthy essay on Europe populism, Mm -hmm. which is decidedly different than it was 12 months ago. What is the threat to, to democracy in Europe right now?
3: Well, 2019 is really the year when the populists will take center stage in Europe and begin to erode the EU from within. We've written for several months now about the rise of populism and populist yeah. leaders and uh, you know, Europe's third and fourth largest market economies in other countries uh, such as Hungary and Poland. But what's critical now is that we expect that uh, populists, their numbers are going to fare even better in 2019. And keep an eye on the May Parliamentary elections. We expect that their numbers are going to grow following those elections, right. which will put them at center stage in Europe's most important democratic institution. So the,
2: in the dominant uh, uh, countries as well, Eurasia Group was so out front on the fractures of Germany, one and two, and even three years ago. And of course, Mr. Macron with the challenges. Now, how does that redound back to Brussels, where I was just Uh, Two weeks ago, I I guess, when, when I look at Brussels, what is the strength of this European Union within the media frenzy of Brexit?
3: Well, look, the, the Brussels, it, it's, it's dealing both with Brexit, but it's going to have to deal with the growing voice and the growing influence of the populace, not only in the European Parliament following May's elections, but Tom, if, if the populace get enough of a strong showing in the May parliamentary elections, you combine that with their fairly solid basis of support in several key states, and you have a, a risk of, uh, you know, you're a skeptic, Populists having a voice not only in the parliament but also in the European Commission, which oversees the day to day operations of <coughs> Europe, as, as well as the European Council. This affords them is, real decision making power. Is
2: this within the, all of your top risks at Eurasia Group? Is the system fractured? to steal a word from Francine Lacroix earlier uh, this morning, is the system fractured or are you optimistic with Dr. Bremer that we can see a healing, if not in 2019, then on through 20, after the presidential cycle and into the ensuing years?
3: So is the question more so with Europe or broadly speaking? I think the broadly speaking,
2: I think our listeners are, you know, they're, they're interested in Europe and they're interested in Wall Street and that. Right. But it's sort of a broad feeling of, okay, When does this heal?
3: Right. Look, it's going to take several more years of healing, but but the length of time that it takes for us to actually heal depends upon the ability of leaders from largely industrialized economies tackling head-on the reforms that are necessary to bring more of their populations Into the economy of the future, a lot of the geopolitical flux that we're seeing now—part of it—it's a long-term process of evolving from the post-World War II order to what that new World War, um, what that new world order will be. Do we know that
2: this is critical? Do we know that new order that's out there? Zakaria, post-American order, Bremer, G Zero World, your own writings, Meredith Sumter as well, and others. What's the new consensus after the Washington consensus? I don't see it.
3: Well, part of that will depend upon what role Washington decides to play in this post World War II order, and to what extent Washington t- can get along with other key power brokers. Even if
2: they don't agree with them.
3: Even if they don't agree with them. Yeah. This this fundamentally includes China, Beijing. So regardless of whatever tariff deal is agreed to, our call mm-hmm. is that that relationships between the two, that these two world powers is going to get even tougher. In okay, the well let's months. bring the
2: immediacy of a shutdown where the president's made clear it's his way or the highway. Is that his relationship with China? Is that what we're going to see in the talks this week, the talks maybe at Davos and the talks and the talks and the talks after that? Is it a Trump lateral world?
3: It would be a Trump lateral world if we had an unending U.S. economic growth and strength. But that's not necessarily what we're seeing right now. Uh, Trump is fairly confident in the U.S. economy, but we're all watching the increased market volatility. Yeah. We're all watching signs of a potential slowdown in the U.S. economy. Yeah. And that could force his hand earlier than than he would like. But the key question is, whether it's Trump or post-Trump, Yeah. to what extent is America going to lead? And what does that mean for the post world order
0: that was meredith sumter head of strategy research at the eurasia group following her boss ian bremer brilliant minds for sure but as we keep on learning the only certainty about the future is that it will be full of surprises and 2019 is certain to contain its fair share This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.